season of Lent. We are, we are three days in. If you are fasting and you so choose, you can break the fast today. Sunday is always a day of feasting, and you don't fast at the same time as you feast. It doesn't work. So today, um, I, I hope you enjoy the day and get ready for another week. And, um, but it's, it's about focus. Fasting is always about focus. It's about shifting our attention to God. It's about looking at the things in life that maybe we depend on or think we depend on, even as basic as food and realizing, as Jesus did, that we don't live by bread alone. It's about learning to find that, that source of life that is so much deeper. Can I be honest with you? Fasting sucks. But it's a good kind of suck. Like it transforms you in a way that, that opens us up to him, that reveals to us more of who he is and who we are and how to engage with him. And so as we join in his 40 days of fasting by fasting these 40 days, of it's about focus. And so often it's not until we find ourselves in a time of desperation a time of need or, or darkness when life as we have orchestrated it begins to fall apart, that we start to look for God, that we start to look for answers, that we start to look for something else or maybe another way. And we, so we find ourselves then in those dark places, in those deep places, in the times when life falls apart and doesn't go according to our plan, starting to ask and search. We're asking questions like why, probably one of the most helpful and most disturbing questions we can ask, because there is no answer in this life to so many of the things that we want a why to, and we have to shift and begin to to ask who and what's going on behind these things and, and begin to turn our attention on something greater. Those questions start to swirl, and a lot of times we get stuck there. We never actually move to answers. We get stuck in questions, and we just keep running those questions over in our minds over and over and over again, stuck in this endless cycle of our own questioning. We get stuck in our dark place. We get stuck in our, in our pain, we get stuck in our losses, we get stuck in our disappointments, we get stuck in our failures. And those things become baggage that we carry with us everywhere we go. Some of us maybe have small bags, little handbags or backpacks that go with us, but still feel like rocks on our shoulders day in and day out. Others of us we drag around so much baggage that we trip over it, and so does everyone else around us. Many of us showed up at Hydrant carrying a lot of bags, carrying a lot of baggage, and hoping to find some way and someone that could help us lay it down. Some of us, some of us showed up to Lent that way, right? We've shown up into this 40 days as we look ahead to Easter and we, we've shown up carrying just stuff. We've come fasting, hoping to open ourselves up to God and spend these 40 days focusing on Him. We've come to Lent hoping to find our way 
through our pain, through our disappointment, through our questions, through our, 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 our stuff. We're hoping to set, a, set down some disappointment or set down some addiction, set down some fears, set down some habits, set down some dependencies or distractions or, or the things that we go to when we're hurting that don't actually help us. And we're hoping to learn to, to open ourselves up to Him. There's a story we saw the beginning part of there in Isaiah chapter 6. And feel free to, to turn there if you'd like or to use your phone or whatever works for you. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is a prophet in the Old Testament. And actually it's kind of a book of three prophets crammed together under one name. And we're at the beginning in Isaiah chapter 6. It's the story of a man searching in his time of need. It begins in verse 1 with these words. It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces and with two they covered their feet and two they flew. They were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, see, this coal Has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. Then, then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. Isaiah is entering into the temple in a time of need. He tells us that it was the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah served somewhere between uh, 42 and 52 years, depending on the historical record. And he was, in terms of royal lineage, in terms of, of, of political might, the last great king of Judah. He expanded their territories, created cities and took cities in, in, uh, among the Philistine territories. He increased the wealth. He added on to the, to the temple, added towers, added on to the castle. They had, they had continued to grow as a people. And they were told that it was because of his faithfulness to God. 
His trust in God. That they had, a, they had risen to more power and wealth as a people than they had ever known. And then he dies. He dies of leprosy. Because he began to think that what he had accomplished was based on his might and strength and ability and not on God's. And he decided that he was going to be the one to do the work of the priests and kick the priests out of the temple and burn the incense himself and threaten them with their lives if they came back in. And so, and so he was struck with leprosy and died. And now Isaiah enters into the temple to worship. And his mind has got to be riddled with questions. What now? Not just as a priest, but what now as a people? This great king who had led us to greater influence and power had served God has now turned and fallen. What now? Who will take his place and will they be faithful Will they continually, will God continue to bless? What's going on now? There's questions and uncertainty and doubts. And Isaiah, in his time of need, he chooses to worship his way through it. He chooses to worship his way through it. Whatever's going to come, whatever's happening, whatever uncertainty or question, no matter what king is going to take his place, he is going to worship his way through it. And he goes to the temple. It makes me wonder, where do I go in my time of need? Where do I go in my time of need? When my stress level rises, when my uncertainty is overwhelming. When I don't know what's going to happen, when I don't know what to do, when I feel too much pressure, when life starts to fall apart, where do I go? Where do you go? Some of us go shopping. (laughs) Some of us go to the refrigerator. Some of us go to the gym. Some of us get online. Some of us turn on a TV and just distract ourselves. Some of us just get busy doing more work. Some of us will reach out into the things that we think we can control and get, try to get control of them. And we realize, we realize that we can't control our circumstances, so we try to control the people within those circumstances. And instead, Isaiah goes into the temple to worship. He goes to worship his way through, to continue to sing his hallelujah no matter what. Darkness is there. Lent is about shedding those things we go to when life starts to fall apart or get hard. In the the long days, long nights of late winter. Isaiah, as he goes to worship, as he goes searching for God, he finds God. Jeremiah, another prophet, in 29.13 says, You will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. 
You will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Matthew 7, 7, the words of Jesus, seek and you will find. It doesn't say immediately and he doesn't give us any timetable. He doesn't even say how. I wish for all of us it would be like Isaiah and we'd come into church and we'd see him high and lifted up and the weight of his glory filling the temple and it would eliminate our doubts. And instead he tends to show up in in small ways. He tends to show up in quieter ways. He tends to show up in more personal ways. But he shows up. And you see, Isaiah sees the God who shows up in all of his glory, in all of his power, in all of his holiness, in all of his transcendence and separateness. The God who is greater than the circumstance. The God who is greater than the former king, the one that was dead or the one that will come. He is greater than the enemies that they face. He is greater than anything that can be contained within this temple. In fact, even his angels singing shakes the very foundation of that temple. He sees God. But not just the God who is separate, not just the God who is big, not just the God who is far off, high and lifted up. He sees the God who shows up right there. And whose glory, whose weightiness, whose presence surrounds him. It surrounds him and it's so thick, it's like smoke filling the temple. It's like this this weightiness of his presence is there with him in this time of need. He sees a God who cares for his people, who has not abandoned them, even when their king abandoned him, even when they abandoned him. He refuses to turn his back and he keeps showing up, he keeps Caring, he is the God who comes close, close enough for Isaiah to notice and recognize him. And for those who would go and worship their way through, those who would go and seek with their whole heart, I believe he shows us himself. He shows up. It may not be in the way we want or expect, and it may not solve all our problems. They certainly didn't solve all of Isaiah's. He just created more. We'll see that in a minute. But he is a God who comes close, a God who remains faithful. He's not shifted or surprised or threatened by our situation, our darkness, our struggle, our pain. Our questions do not worry him. I was with a group of pastors this week, and we were spending our time focusing on emotionally healthy spirituality, letting God deeper than the surface, letting God deeper than our mind or just our what we would typically call spiritual things, but letting God into the deepest part of us, our deepest hurts, our deepest stories, those moments that, that we would rather hide or not deal with and we don't think of as very spiritual, letting Him into our anger and our fear and our sadness and our doubt and our questions because unless God has those, He doesn't have us. And it won't take long before we start pretending this spiritual thing. And so we, we were talking about letting him in. And I told him, I told him, I said, our prayers, our prayers ought to have a lot more questions than requests. Our prayers, our prayers ought to have a lot more yelling than they do. Our prayers ought to expose our anger 
our frustration, our doubt, all of that should come out in our prayers. Our prayers are not need to be these neat, constructed sets of words in hopes that they will get God's attention. He just wants to connect with us. In fact, I told him, I said, your prayers should probably have a lot more cussing than they do. Because it's in your head. He already heard it. Some things are too painful for nice words. And God can handle it. He's the God who shows up. He's the God who is faithful. A God who is with us, who refuses to leave us. Now here's the problem. If we'll really let ourselves see God, we'll see ourselves too. We'll see the words we've been stuffing down, the words we've been letting control, the the things we've been going to, the distractions. We'll see the pain. We'll see ourselves. Augustine wrote that, that when we see God, we see ourselves as we truly are. When we know ourselves, we know God. That the two are so close that they are inseparable. They're intertwined. We cannot rightfully know one without knowing the other. When we see God, we become or begin to become self-aware. But this is where spirituality ends for a lot of us. We don't want to dig into that. I don't don't want to talk about that with you, God. Look, let me just give one blanket. I'm sorry for all of my sins. We'll say this once and be done with it. We We don't want to really look. We don't want to look at the brokenness and the pain and the loss and the disappointment. We don't want to look at the sadness or the fear or the anger. We don't want to really see ourselves and be undone like Isaiah. You see it in verse verse 5, I believe. Yeah, verse 5. So your version, if you got the NIV, it says, Woe is me. Woe is me. The very first word spoken in the story. In fact, I read from the NLT, it says, it's all over, I'm doomed. In an encounter with a holy, separate, powerful God, and he sees himself in all of this, it's just all over, he's doomed. Woe is me, I am completely undone. I cannot stitch this together and hold this together before you, God, the way that I pretend with everyone else. You see, he exposes, he lets us see ourselves when we see him. And we see things like our, our pain and our loss and our, and, our, and, our, and our darkness, our sadness and our fear. We see our anxieties and our depressions and, our, and the ways that we try to control. We see We see all of the mechanisms that we use to prop up a false identity that we want everyone else to believe about us. The facade. And we see what's behind it. The very thing we'd rather not look at. We see our sin. We see the ways we've rebelled against God and hurt ourselves and hurt others to keep that facade up. To keep the game up. We see the, the brokenness, the, the things that we do to try to, to try to get control of ourselves and others and the ways that we hurt and we break things and we manipulate others. All of these broken relational things are what the Bible calls sin. Anything that breaks the relationship with God or others. Anything that is not love is sin. 
And Isaiah is undone by his sin. He calls it filthy lips. But not only is he undone and feel responsible for his sin, he feels responsible and connected to the sin of all the people in his community, his nation. He refuses to isolate and individualize himself to a point that he doesn't own and feel culpable for his participation in the sin of a people. And he sees all of this. He sees it so clearly that he just falls on his face before God. And then the drama unfolds. He's spoken. It's all over. I'm doomed. Sinful man. Filthy lips. Live among people with filthy lips. Yet I've seen the king. The Lord of heavens. How will I ever survive in his presence? But God makes a way. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal. He had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it. See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. When he touched him, you notice it didn't hurt. It didn't burn his lips. It just seared the sin. It cleansed him and made him new. Made him able to stand in the presence of God. But in this moment, what we see from Isaiah... As he describes this filth of his lips and his complicity and the guilt of his people. Is that he had to let God sear away that sin if he was going to remain in God's presence. If he was going to remain in the weightiness of it all. If he was going to remain connected to God. He had to let God sear that away so that he could embrace what he was made to do. It's Isaiah's sin that was getting In the way of his connection to God. Getting in the way of him stepping into his calling. Into what he was made for. Into what he was doing. Into his direction in life. I wonder what's keeping you and I from experiencing God. From really worshiping and experiencing God in that. What's getting in between me and him. You and him. What's keeping us from stepping into direction in life? It's an old relationship. Is it pride? Self-righteousness? Feeling that there is nothing to be woeful about? Is it a need to be right? That need to be right that refuses to let us bow before God or anyone else gets in the way of us loving him or anyone else maybe it's a a secret or hidden sin that's been eating away at you as long as you can remember it's owned you there's some false identity not like a stolen identity but this false perception of who you are that you want others to see Having it together, having it figured out, 
happy on the outside, broken on the inside. The coping mechanism, the distraction. What is it that has long kept you tethered to an old way, to an old life, to who you were not created to be? Over and over in Scripture, we see that there are those who have to let go of something to embrace what God has for them. In 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 21, there's a, a prophet, Elisha. He's the protege of the prophet Elijah. And he wants to follow Elijah, and at first he tells him no, but eventually he calls him. He says, okay, now's the time. And here's what he does in 1921. He takes the plow that he's been working with and he burns it. And he roasts the oxen on the plow and feeds it to everyone around in town. He holds the biggest cookout ever and eliminates his options that don't include following God. He eliminates the options He eliminates going back to that old life. He has to let go of it completely. The way he had sustained himself, the way that he had identified, he had to let go of that to be able to go forward. He knew it would be a temptation to go back. There's Peter and Andrew who left their identity and security behind when they encountered Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 and 20. Two fishermen casting nets. Along the shore. And Jesus casually walks by as a rabbi and says, come follow me. It's a loaded, it's a loaded invitation in ancient Hebrew culture. A rabbi's invitation to come and follow is to come and become like him. To follow him really for the rest of your life until he dies. And when he dies, you start doing what he did. It's a new identity, a new way forward in life. And they leave their nets behind. To follow him. Jesus writes these words in Matthew chapter 8. Or not writes these words, sorry. These words are written about him. Verse 18. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he instructed his disciples to cross over to the other side of the lake. Then one of the teachers of the religious law said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in. And birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. Have you ever realized Jesus was homeless? Perhaps that might change the way we see the homeless in our community. Sometimes we use this language, like we're going to be the hands and feet, we're going to be Jesus to someone. But Matthew 25 teaches us that we see and experience Jesus when we serve the poor and the needy around us. They become Jesus to us, not the other way around. Not only, they say this in verse 21, another of his disciples said, Lord, first let me return home and bury my father. Then I'll follow you across the lake. But Jesus told him, follow me now. Let the dead bury their own dead. I don't know really what Jesus expected there. But there was this sense in which you have to turn completely toward him. Follow him with everything that you are. 
and leave the things that are dead behind. See, we keep holding on to those. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Because we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, other believers from past and present, because we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip away every weight that slows down, especially sin that trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. So what he's talking about, in the ancient times, as they would run these races, they would do it naked. You had to strip down to get as fast as you could. We found other ways around that with modern technology. Thank goodness. I don't think that the viewership of the Olympics would be quite the same if it was all done naked. I mean, it might go up. It might go down. I'm not sure. But he's talking about stripping away everything that gets in the way or slows us down. Especially the sin that tends to be like ropes around our feet, tripping us up every time we try to follow him. And here's what he says. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. Now we use Lent as a refocus because of the drift. Because of the tendency to to let things slide. The tendency to get away from what we really care about. We use these 40 days to refocus. To get our eyes set on Jesus. The champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Faith is not like an all or nothing. It's something that grows in us. And deepens in us and owns more of us, a whole way of being. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding his shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. What do you need to let go? What needs to be of the past, cleansed, seared away today? A sin, a habit coping mechanism, a pride, a sense of need for control, even an insecurity? Is there baggage that you need to set down and let him have? Because as you've seen him, it's not that there was sin that you've seen, but there's just been stuff you've been holding on to. He says, it's time to let that go. It's time to trust that to me, to leave justice to me, to let me handle that. What do we need to let go? When we do, we begin to hear God speak. Verse 8, then I heard the Lord asking, whom shall I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Connection with God, this worship, having been transformed by him, saved, if you will, will always turn us Outward, It begins in worship and a connection with him that fills us and transforms us. And then it turns us outward. Yes, we have to turn upward to see God. We turn inward to see ourselves. But then we must turn outward in service of those around us. It will always lead us outward. God sends us out. For most of us, that doesn't mean vocational ministry. It doesn't mean pastoring or preaching. It doesn't mean going to a mission field somewhere, though it may. 
But we are all called and sent by God. We're sent as doctors and nurses and teachers and administrators, mechanics and programmers and students and officers and and servicemen and women. We are sent into any and every field to which he calls us. We are sent. And here's how we respond. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you. Give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. The kind he'll find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases that in the the message. It says this. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. Your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life. And place it before God as an offering. As you wake up in the morning, ask God, what do you want for me today? What do you have for me to do? Help me to notice those things. Help me to see you. And if you show me, I'll do my best to do it. So that embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. So don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognizing what he wants for you and quickly responding to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best, the best out of you. He develops a well-formed maturity in you. James, the brother of Jesus, teaches that faith without works is dead. Our faith will always turn us outward. An experience of God will always turn us outward. It's not always an easy thing. It's not easy to have that light turned on us. We, it, it's good and exciting to look upward and see God high and lifted up, but then we see ourselves and that's no fun. It's not easy to deal with that stuff. It's not easy to let go of it. It's not easy to hand it over to Him. And then it doesn't get any easier when we begin to do that and He turns us outward. He never promises ease. He promises that it'll be worth it. I mean, if you, if you go into Isaiah, the rest of chapter 6, and, and he says, here I am, send me. And we usually stop reading there because the rest of the chapter is God telling Isaiah how horrible the job he has is for him. You're going to go preach to my people and they're not going to listen. You're going to preach. Their ears are going to be closed. Their eyes are going to be closed. They're not going to see any of it. And I'm going to destroy them. And that's your message. He, it's so bad that he, Isaiah is asked by God, are you sure you want to do this? Because I can find another prophet. I think, yeah, God, I think if you've got another job for me, I'll do that. I can, I can sweep up in here in the temple. I can take care of things. You know, I like burning the incense, this whole preaching to people who don't want to listen. I don't know that I want to do that. And there will be times that he challenges us and pushes us and invites us to do things we don't want to do. But he promises us that it'll be worth it. 
He goes through, and I encourage you, go read Hebrews chapter 11 this afternoon. It's this whole litany of people who live by faith. And as it gets to the end, he starts talking about people who are sawn in two and fed to the lions. And then he says, the world was not worthy of them. And they endured everything they endured for the sake of all of God's children who will be brought together and receive their reward together. That it will be worth it. It will be worth it when we go into those dark seasons and choose to worship our way through it. We, t- we choose to seek God and leave behind the stuff that keeps tripping us up. And then we go. We go live. We go serve. We go do this day-to-day journey of following Him. Believing and knowing that it is the best way to live. That it is the truest way to live. It is a life worth living. Jesus put it somewhere else, in, or Jesus said several times that if you want to find life, it's found in losing it. When you try to hold on to the life you think you want, the life you think you've created, the life you manipulate and create for yourself, when you hold on to your own answers, that's when it all falls apart. That's when you lose life. Life is found in submitting it to him and trusting him with it. The questions, the uncertainty, the darkness, all the stuff we see when we look inside. And then going, doing whatever he asks us to do. We're going to pray and then we're going to come together each week in Lent and, and come to the table for many of us who have chosen it, and we will, we will fast the next six days. And we need the strength of Christ to sustain us. <laughs> and for those of us who are not fasting, we need the strength of Christ to sustain us. It is the place where we all stand and where we all live. And as we come together, we receive that strength in Him. There is something about this meal. It's the only thing we eat That more than it becomes a part of us, we become a part of Him. We're connected to Him. He and us, and us and Him. He says, remain in me and I will remain in you. And so weekly we come back together. Sustained in unity and surrender to Him. To whatever He asks of us. And so we lean in to Him. I'm going to pray, and then you're invited to come and receive. Now, this is not my table. It doesn't belong to Hydrant Church or the Wesleyan Church. This belongs to Jesus. And He invites all who would receive His grace, all who would receive His forgiveness, all who would receive life from Him to receive. In so many ways, it is an act of surrender. It is an act of confession. It is an act of receiving grace as we come to Him. In need. It's an act of humility. A physical act. That is a symbol. Of coming to him. A symbol for us today. Of choosing to worship our way through. Of choosing to seek him. And surrender what we see inwardly. And to go out. In this week. Wherever he sends us.